This is our last week in the book of Haggai. I hope that as we've read through this book, as you've read through it, as we've worked our way through it, you've gained a little appreciation for this prophet and for the message of the prophets in the Old Testament and how they're fulfilled in the New. We'll see that particularly this morning as we read this passage on judgment and deliverance. You follow as I read Haggai chapter 2, verse 20 till the end of the chapter, end of the book. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I'm about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders. And the horses and their riders shall go down every one by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring. For I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. Father, now open the text of your word to us, that we might understand it not just as a message that was given long ago and far away, but as it is the word of God addressed to your people who are sitting here now. We're thankful that you speak to us. We're thankful that you reveal yourself to us in the text of Scripture. Now make this one alive to us as we look into it and understand it. Thank you again for the Lord Jesus who fulfills all of this. And we give you thanks now for what you're going to do in changing us through this message, through this message from Haggai in Jesus' name. Amen. In our text this morning, you discover not Haggai the prophet, but Haggai the artist, Haggai the, the, the painter. He paints for us a picture, a portrait using broad strokes of color with little elaborate detail. His colors are earthquake, revolution, clashing armies, civil strife. But in this work, he intends to draw your attention to the shaft of sunlight that illuminates one part of the picture, a ring on Zerubbabel's finger. Now this is the second message delivered by Haggai on the 18th of December, 520 B.C. We saw the first message on that day last week to people who feared that their crops might fail because of their late repentance. God had said, My grace is there. I will see that you have all that you need. You have turned to me. I will see and provide. And that that message promised his abundant grace. But now, in this text, our, our, our sight is moved from fields of grain to, to this great vista of the entire world and what God's going to do. And the heart of this message is Zerubbabel, the governor of the people, and also, by the way, a descendant, a member of David's household, of royal blood. He is that shining ring in this painting. And the message revolves around this leader. Now, God intends by this message to Zerubbabel to give you hope. To give you hope. 
I don't know about you, but I think everybody needs hope, right? If it wasn't for hope, we wouldn't keep going. We'd quit. But God gives us hope in this text this morning. Here's the first thing. Gain hope through God's promise of deliverance. Gain hope through God's promise of deliverance. You see that in the first three verses. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I'm about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I am about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their horses. And the horse and their riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. Gain hope through God's promise of deliverance. Now the vista widens from the promise of a great harvest to a promise of God's working on a cosmic scale, on a worldwide scale. Now, several years ago, Beck and I went to, uh, took a train to Whitefish, Montana, and back. It was an incredible trip. And one of the things you notice is when you come out of Whitefish and head east, you go up into the Rockies. And after a couple hours, you emerge from the Rockies, and you're on what's called the High Plains. They're, they're high in elevation. And you could look out those windows, and you could see unbelievable vistas just all around you. Unreal. Unreal. It's kind of like a friend told me about the flatland of North Dakota, right? You can climb up on your roof and watch your dog run away for three days. That's how flat it was. That's how unbelievably flat it was. You could see for miles and miles and miles. And so in verses 20 and 21, we emerge onto this world scene. We emerge onto this world scene. For the second time, God says he's going to shake the earth. He said it in verse 6 of this chapter. Now he says it again. Now he's not speaking here of a literal earthquake, a worldwide earthquake. He's talking about what happens when God chooses to accomplish his purposes. And this points to the reality of God's working on a cosmic scale, not just, not just in their fields, not just in that little province in the Persian Empire, but what's going to happen on a worldwide scale. He now opens up so that we see what he's going to do on a worldwide scale. And Haggai tells us how God will work by recalling God's judgments in the past. He paints the picture of deliverance with the broad strokes of God's judgment, his past judgments. He makes a reference here. He recalls the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah. He looks at the judgment that happened at the Exodus, the divine deliverance at the Exodus. He remembers what happened when God chose Gideon. All those are in mind as he opens up our minds to this worldwide scale of judgment. You see, those judgments in the past reveal the larger story of who God is and how he operates and how he will operate in the future. The way he delivered his people in the past is more than just a history of the past. You know, we tend to read those stories and just think, oh yeah, that happened long ago, far away in a different land, right? But God intends to show us himself. God intends us to show us a bigger picture in those things, even pictures that would point us forward. Now, I've seen a movie. It's fascinating to me. It's called The Village. Maybe you've seen it. Maybe you haven't. If you haven't, spoiler alert. All right? In this movie by M. Night Shyamalan, it first appears to be the story 
of a people of about a century or 150 years ago living in a little village surrounded by this impenetrable um, forest. And then you see suddenly things go sour as there's unfaithfulness to spouses in this village and deceit and even murder in this little village. And as the story proceeds, you find out something incredible, that this isn't a village from 100 or 150 years ago, but a modern group of people who have left the violent world behind them to raise their children in a pristine environment, free from the violent influences of the world around them, of modern life. Now, did 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 Shyamalan intend to produce this fascinating story so we would sit back and say, oh, that was really interesting. I, I love the way that story went. That wasn't the purpose of him making that movie at all. You know what the purpose of that movie was? He wanted to tell a larger story. He wanted to tell a bigger story. It wasn't just about this little village. What he was saying to everyone in a big way was this. You can remove people from evil influences, but you can't remove evil from people, right? That's what he was trying to prove. See, he had a larger story. Now, in the same way, um, the record of Sodom and Gomorrah, the Exodus, and Gideon really tells the larger story. Who God is and how God operates even in the future, as he bursts on the world scene. Those judgments in the past are intended to say something about God, how he has operated and how he will operate. It's all about God. It's the larger story of God operating. Now, the first thing he, he alludes to, these are illusions now. He's, he's kind of making these echoes in your mind. The first thing he, he alludes to is this. Uh, or says to you, God will deliver you by a total destruction like Sodom and Gomorrah. Now the word term overthrow here, I think he, he uses commonly, it's a, it's a common word used of, of, of judgment that God poured out on those cities. And it's used by the later prophets to picture the same kind of destructive judgment. Turn back to Genesis 19. Genesis 19. Here's the illusion he makes so that we understand something about God and his future judgment. Genesis 19, starting, we'll pick it up in verse 18. All right, this is Lot talking. And Lot said to them, these angels, Oh no, my lords, behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life. But I cannot escape to the hills, lest a disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to, and it's a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. He, which is the chief angel, which we know now to be Jesus, he said to him, Behold, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there. Therefore the name of the city was called Zoar. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. When the Lord, then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven 
And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. All right? So here is the judgment of God, and through that judgment, he saved Lot. But it was a great judgment. It was a, this, this pictures the destruction of cosmic proportions aimed at all the powers organized against God, because it talks about the throne of the kingdoms. It's plural. By overthrowing Sodom and Gomorrah, Lot was saved. In overthrowing all evil powers, you will be saved. So we can find hope in the fact that no evil remains to harass and hurt the people of God. We see that in this great judgment. This is the judgment that will come. A judgment that will be um, a total destruction that will save us, that will deliver us. And then he goes on and says, and he alludes to the fact of the judgment at Exodus. God will deliver you by an obvious destruction like that of Exodus. And, and Bowden read that for us today already from, from Exodus 14. God's judgment was so obvious that the Egyptians were saying, the Lord, Jehovah, is fighting for these people. we got to get out of here. And glory was gained by God, or glory was ascribed to God, even by the Egyptians. And that day the Israelites saw the bodies of men and horses and the wheels of their chariots washing up on the, on the shores of the sea. And Israel stood and saw the salvation of the Lord and knew that they were now free from the bondage that they had experienced for 400 years. They saw and they knew their deliverance. So here is your hope. God's deliverance will be so obvious that, it, that you will be free once and for all. And then finally, he says, God will deliver you through the self-destructive nature of evil, as with Gideon, the, the brother taking sword against brother. Turn to Judges chapter 7. Judges chapter 7. And here we read, beginning in verse 19. So Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch when they had just set the watch. And they blew the trumpets and smashed the jars that were in their hands. Then the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the jars. They held in their left hands the torches and in their right hands the trumpets to blow. And they cried out, A sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Every man stood in his place around the camp, and all the army ran. They cried out and fled. Then they, when they blew the three hundred trumpets, the Lord said, Every man sword against his comrade and against all the enemy. And the army fled as far as Bethshittah towards Zerarah. And as far as the border of Abel Meholah by Tabat. 
And the, and the men of Israel were called out from Naphtali and from Asher and from all Manasseh, and they pursued after Midian. Here we see the self-destruction that evil brings. All sin by nature is, is destructive and has a boomerang effect. You ever thought about that? Consider for a moment one way in which God expresses his judgment. All right? When you look at Romans chapter 1, it talks about the wrath of God is expressed against the unrighteous. And then it goes on to describe what? That he gave them over to their wicked passions. One of the way that God expresses his judgment is by giving men free reign to their sin. Because it's a destructive thing. They do what they want and they experience the misery and the destruction of sin. And we have hope because sin does not have the power to ultimately overcome righteousness because it is self-destructive at its core. And even here we see that as he alludes to the fact that Gideon has caused the enemies of God's people to turn on themselves. But we need to understand this from the prophet. God will deliver his people and he will do it by means of judgment. One of the ways that we need to remember to look on judgment is to see it as God's means of rescuing his people. All right? I think too often we have a one-dimensional view of judgment. God's going to get those who don't believe in Jesus. But there's another side to it. And you see it all through Scripture. You see it here. And that is that judgment is a means that God uses to rescue his people. And so when God explodes on the world scene, it will not be just to bring judgment against his enemies. Its purpose is to deliver his people, just like in the Exodus. Right? Just like Lot was saved in Sodom and Gomorrah. Just like uh, Israel had triumph through Gideon and the, them turning, uh, the, their enemy forces turning on one another. So that we have hope in the face of God's destructive judgments. Never forget that. Right? I, I'm reminded of a, of a book, uh, uh, Hamilton, his name is Hamilton, wrote an entire book. Um, he's a professor at Southern Seminary in Louisville. And he wrote a book called Salvation Through Judgment. It's all about this theme of judgment through the scripture and how it, judgment also means um, deliverance for God's people. Destruction on God's enemies, deliverance for God's people. Now there may be some here who do not believe these things, who do not believe what God has said. You need to be warned. Judgment of the most severe kind it's about to spring on the entire world and you will either be rescued or you will be crushed by the weight of God's hand of judgment. Now, I don't know everybody here. I don't know your hearts, right? I don't know your hearts, but if there's any here that have never bowed the knee to Jesus, you need to understand there is an incredible judgment coming that will not deliver you. Now, so we gain hope through God's promise, promise of judgment, but we also gain hope through God's promise of a deliverer. And that's what we see in the very last verse. In verse 23. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. In the midst of this global judgment and deliverance, a king will rise. God's signet ring. Now the question is, is it Zerubbabel? It appears as if it is, and yet Zerubbabel never achieved that stature. 
And these things did not seem to happen. They didn't happen during his day. And part of that is we need to understand the nature of Israel's king. This identification of the king with a Messiah who is almost superhuman and larger than life, that kind of identification was made for every king. Now let me give you a couple examples. Let's look at two psalms. Let's look at Psalm 72. Psalm 72, by the way, we sang the hymn that's based on Psalm 72, Jesus Shall Reign, right? All right, now do you notice the superscript on there? It's not inspired, but it says, of Solomon. This was said of Solomon at his coronation probably. Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people, give deliverance to the children of the needy, and crush the oppressor. May they fear you while the sun endures as long as the moon throughout all generations. May he be like rain that falls on the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. In his days may the righteous flourish and peace abound till the moon be no more. May have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands tender him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him. All nations serve him. For he delivers the needy when he calls the poor and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy. He saves the lives of the needy from oppression and violence. He redeems their life and precious is their blood in his sight. Long may he live. May gold of Shabbat be given to him. May prayer be made for him continually and blessings invoked for him all the day. May there be abundance of grain in the land and on the tops of the mountains. May it wave. May its fruit be like Lebanon. And may people blossom in the cities like the grass in the field. May his name endure forever, his fame continue as long as the sun. May people be blessed in him. All nations call him blessed. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. For the prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. Now, notice that. That's ascribed to Solomon. Did he do it? Some of it. He did some of it. He, he was wise. He did seem to care for the needy. He did seem to do that. But did all nations, did all nations bow to him? No. Was his kingdom as extensive as this says? No. In fact, we can say that Solomon at one point did not do very well at all. Right? He, he started to live a life that did not glorify God. I think at the end he responded in repentance as is evident in the book of Ecclesiastes but nevertheless this is not entirely true of him look at Psalm 2 look over at Psalm 2 now all of you are sitting there saying okay we know it's Jesus but why why do you say that well let's let's look at Psalm 2 why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain 
The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds him in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in your way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. I mean, come on. Did, did the kings of the earth, I mean, even in that part of the world did they do this? With the king. This is ascribed as well to a king in Israel. All right? And and it's probably true that a number of these were were prayed or sung at the coronation of the king, but no king ever fulfilled all that's said about him. And all of us right away say, Well, it's obviously about Jesus, but why do you say that? Why is it obviously about Jesus? Here's what happened. When king after king failed to realize this high expectation, the hope was thrown to the future. Maybe the king will come. Maybe the king will come. Maybe this king will come. And they would, if you, if you can imagine it, sing this at the coronation of their kings, but none of the kings would ever fulfill everything that was said in these coronation psalms. So what happened? They kept waiting for that king. Now we know who that king is, right? In fact, you, you saw in, in Psalm 72 this idea of taking an iron rod and dashing the nations to pieces. Where else have you seen that, by the way? Where else do you see that? It's in the book of Revelation when Jesus returns. It's applied to him, right? Why? Because he's the king. Uh, one biblical scholar, uh, I respect him a great deal, is a guy named Bruce Waltke. And I remember him saying one time, it's like this great big robe is woven from these psalms. And it's a robe, and every time they put it on a king, it didn't fit. And so they kept waiting for the king who would fill out that robe. Right? And we know that is filled by Jesus. We know that he is the promised king. Why? Because he's the one that has begun to fulfill all of these. Hasn't been fulfilled completely. But we know that he is the one who will, as John in the book of Revelation recognizes. And so they keep looking for this king. So even though it's Zerubbabel that's mentioned, Zerubbabel doesn't fulfill it at this late stage in their history and so they keep looking for the king who will fulfill what's been promised here to uh, Zerubbabel. Now it says he's going to be God's signet ring. What's a signet ring? This was a ring that had a carving of the, uh, a symbol of the king. It was identified with the king. It was, it was worn on the finger or on a chain around the neck. And what it, was, what it would do when a royal document would be sent or a royal proclamation would be made, the signet ring would be pressed in the wax or it would be pressed in the clay tablet. What did that mean? It means this comes from the king. This is the king's word. This is to be identified with the king. It's like our signature today, right? When you sign on the dotted line, as we say, when you sign on the dotted line, you're saying, this is, this is me saying it. I'm, I'm, it's true. All right, And this represents me, that signature. Same thing with that signet ring. And so like a signet ring, the king will carry the identity of God 
and bear a unique relationship with him. Okay? He'll bear a unique relationship with him. With him. Now, no one fits that description except one, right? Look at Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1. You follow as I read. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Here is the one who is the exact representation. Here's a signet ring. Here's the one who um, is the one who says, God said it, here's the guarantee, because this is what, this is who represents him. And by the way, just like Zerubbabel, he will function as God's servant. Matthew chapter 12. Turn to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12, verse 15. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them all, and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah from Psalm 40, or Isaiah 42. Behold, my servant, whom I have chosen, my beloved, with whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles, to the nations. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench, until he brings justice to victory. And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. All right? Zerubbabel was a servant of God. Here Jesus is identified as the servant of God who will fulfill all of the things that God intended his servant to do. And in fact... As the chosen one of God, what does he do? First Peter chapter, chapter 2. First Peter chapter 2. Beginning in verse 4. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through, through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Now notice, Here is the chosen one of God, and note what he does. He builds a temple. He builds a temple of great glory. This is the temple that Haggai had predicted was going to happen. Okay? But it says this must happen in that day. It has has to happen in that day. Is that not still future? We're saying, isn't this still future? Yes and no. Right? Yes and no. We're living right now in that last day. Here's what we have to remember. 
That last day started when Jesus appeared. It'll end when Jesus comes back. We're in the last day, the last epoch, the end times. The day began with the coming of Jesus. What Haggai could not see, we now see. And that when the king came, he didn't come immediately for judgment, did he? He came with grace to deliver people from that judgment, but he will appear again to bring the judgment. But until then, he, he inaugurated, he began the fulfillment of all these prophecies. They began to be fulfilled when he came, and they will be ultimately completely fulfilled when he returns. And so this is what Haggai is looking forward to, all right? We're seeing this king, this signet ring, he's come, he's going to fulfill everything that's said about him completely at the end. He's begun to fulfill it now. All right. If you can think this thought in your head, we talked about it in Sunday school a few weeks ago. This is the already, not yet. The king has arrived. The kingdom is already here, but not yet. It's not here completely. And so as we see Haggai here, he's promising us, uh, giving us hope by talking about this deliverer. So he talks about deliverance in judgment, and he talks about deliverance in a, in a king. Both of those things are true. Both will be fulfilled in Jesus, have begun to be fulfilled in Jesus. So Haggai ends by giving us hope. Haggai starts out with rebuke, right? He starts out with rebuke for our spiritual carelessness. But as we see, as we, as we repent and God brings grace into our lives, he ends by giving you hope. Now is the time for hope. We ought to be a people of hope. You know what destroys our testimony in the world today? When Christians are people without hope and they they walk around with long faces talking about how terrible things are in our country and all the horrible things that are happening. And I agree, the horrible things are happening. I agree. And you know what? As a political animal myself, man, I could really get on a soapbox and go to town about what we ought to do. But the point is, that's, that's not what God's called us to do. We ought to be a people of hope. Now, these people were in a more hopeless situation than we were. And the book ends with God saying, get hope. Look what I'm going to do. And so the same is true of us. We need to be people of hope. Hope built on the promises of God. Right? Not hope built on some kind of political movement that we think will do something. Your hopes will be dashed when you put them there. Our hope has to be in God's promised judgment that is so vast that all of God's people will be saved. And hope, because God has promised a deliverer who fulfills all that God intends his ruler to accomplish for his people. We should have hope. Father, we confess to you the sin of our own hopelessness. We have invested too much in the world and its processes. And instead, Father, we need to invest in your promises. We don't know 
what you're going to do in the present. We don't know all that you're going to do by your providence, but we do know what you're going to do by your promise. And this is what you've promised us, deliverance and a deliverer. So help us to glorify your name. Help us to to live lives of hope so that people will be drawn to you and they will see your glory reflected in us. So Father, our prayer today is help us to know the promises of deliverance and a deliverer so that we will have hope. Thank you for your word to us today. In Jesus' name, amen.